0: The 26th Annual Zero Mental Health Symposium was hosted virtually for the first time this year, which means you can still register and access the content for the next six months. We owe a special thank you to our sponsors who made this event possible, including the George Kaiser Family Foundation, the Ann and Henry Zero Foundation, Public Health Institute of Oklahoma, the Oxley Foundation, and the Maxine and Jack Zero Family Foundation. Learn more or register at Zerosymposium.org.
1: Most black Tulsans vowed, we shall not be moved. They stayed in Tulsa. They rebounded and began rebuilding even as the embers still smoldered from the massacre.
0: You're listening to the mental health download from the nonprofit mental health association, Oklahoma. I'm Matt Gleason on today's episode. We're playing a keynote address by our dear friend, Hannibal B. Johnson. Hannibal gave this address at the recent zero mental health symposium healing from historical trauma. Although the symposium is over, you can still register at zerosymposium.org to watch all of the recorded keynote and breakout sessions. So just a quick note that in his keynote address, Hannibal played a moving scene from HBO's Watchmen series that puts the viewer right at the heart of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. Because of copyright issues, we couldn't include that in the podcast. And it's my pleasure to play the same introduction that brought Hannibal to the virtual stage at the Zero Mental Health Symposium. It was recorded by the super awesome Damian Shade of the Oklahoma Policy Institute, who did me a favor because his voice is amazing. Okay, let's get the keynote address started. The mental health download at the Zero Mental Health Symposium starts now.
1: Hannibal B. Johnson is an attorney, author, and independent consultant who chairs the Education Committee for the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commission. Hannibal wrote the book, Black Wall Street, From Riot to Renaissance, in Tulsa's historic Greenwood District. His keynote will explore the history of racial historical trauma in the United States and discuss how we must think critically about our strategies for addressing the present legacy of historical racial trauma in America to pursue justice and healing. Please welcome Hannibal B. Johnson. Good afternoon. Historical racial trauma born of slavery, peonage, Jim Crow, so-called race riots, lynching, discrimination, and direct and indirect violence of many stripes is real and potent. As David Horsey wrote in the Los Angeles Times back on September 9th, 2014, the cost of this exploitation is almost incalculable in monetary terms. The extreme damage done to community life, however, is all too obvious. It is the same damage evidenced in any poor community, but compounded by generations of neglect. Poor health, undermined family structures, inadequate education, underemployment, crime, addiction, incarceration, and social alienation. This afternoon, our focus is on a catastrophic event in Tulsa in 1921 that still reverberates throughout this community. Indeed, because it is emblematic of so much other racial animus in American history, it resonates well beyond Tulsa's boundaries. What you've just seen, the opening scene from HBO's Watchmen, is a stunning and remarkably true to history imagining of what it must have been like to be in Tulsa, to be black in Tulsa and under siege in 1921. Let's take a step back and look at the historical context before during and after that scene. When I talk about Tulsa's historic Greenwood District, I often preface my conversation with a catchphrase that I developed, and that is this It is not possible to blaze the trails to our future unless we first retrace the footsteps of our past. You may have had a relative, a grandmother, grandfather, parent who said, You can't know where you're going unless you know where you've been. Learning the lessons of our history is imperative. We ignore those lessons at our own peril. The story of the Greenwood District is ultimately about the human spirit. It's about people with vision, people with perseverance, people with resilience, who created a remarkable community, suffered through its destruction, rebounded and rebuilt and thrived thereafter. I'm gonna talk about the community in four parts, really. Roots, the building of the community, the massacre, the 1921 event we've just seen through the clip, regeneration, the remarkable rebuilding after the massacre, and renaissance, some of the current developments in the Greenwood community. Now I told you that the the narrative here really centers on the human spirit. Let me give you an example of what I mean. I'm going to read to you an exchange of two letters that were written in the immediate wake of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. The letters were exchanged by two friends, a fellow named Curtis, who lived in Detroit and his dear friend here in Tulsa, whose name was Oliver. First letter from Curtis to Oliver and then Oliver's reply. Dear Oliver, I am by our local newspaper fully advised of the whole terrible tragedy there. Now that they have destroyed your homes, wrecked your schools, reduced your business places to ashes and killed your people, I am sure that you will rapidly give up the town and move north. In close, please find a draft for $40 to purchase your ticket to Detroit. We'll be expecting you curtis and the reply dear curtis how kind of you to volunteer sympathetic assistance it's just like you to be helpful to others in times of stress like these true it is we are facing a terrible situation it is equally true that they have destroyed our homes they have wrecked our schools they have reduced our churches to ashes and they have murdered our people curtis but they have not touched our spirit. And while I speak only for myself, let it be said that I came here and built my fortune with that spirit. I shall reconstruct it here with that spirit, and I expect to live on and die here with it." Oliver. The saga of Black Wall Street is the story of the Olivers of the world, of the indomitable human spirit. So let's look at the roots of this community before we examine the calamity that was the massacre in 1921 and some of the current developments in the community. So in terms of African-Americans appearing in Oklahoma and and in in Tulsa, we can look back to the infamous Trails of Tears, the forced migrations of the five civilized tribes, the Cherokees, the Muscogee Creeks, the Choctaws, the Chickasaws, and the Seminoles from the Southeastern United States to Indian territory in the 1830s and 1840s. Many people are not aware that among the citizens of those five civilized tribes were people who enslaved Africans. So a number of black folks got to Oklahoma with the Native American tribes as they were forced out of the Southeastern United States. Another great push came in the late 1800s. There was a movement afoot called Boosterism. So Boosterism was the active recruitment of African Americans from the Deep South into what is now Oklahoma. One of the leading boosters was a fellow named E.P. McCabe. McCabe came to Oklahoma in 1889 in the land run. He founded the all-black town of Langston, where Langston University is located. And he set about the business of creating what he imagined would be an all-black state within what is now Oklahoma. He actually met with the United States President Benjamin Harrison in 1890 and talked about this concept. That ultimately failed, obviously. But in the process, many all-black towns were created within what is today Oklahoma. Oklahoma has more all-black towns historically than any other state. A number of folks really responded to the calls of E.P. McCabe and the other boosters. I want to give you an example of one of those families after I share one of the bulletins that McCabe sent down South. This is a circular or a bulletin that McCabe authored, and it says, What will you be if you stay in the South? Slaves liable to be killed at any time and never treated right. But if you come to Oklahoma, you have equal chances with the white man free and independent. Why do Southern whites always run down Oklahoma and try to keep the Negroes from coming here? Because they want to keep them there and live off their labor. White people are coming here every day. And so again, as a result of those circulars and agents that McCabe hired and sent down south to do active recruiting, a number of black families migrated to Oklahoma. One of those families is the family of one of the massacre survivors who's since died, but she re- recollected how her family migrated to Oklahoma early on in the 20th century. She said, my relatives had come to Oklahoma to get away from racism, violence, and death. In fact, my grandfather guessed just barely made it out of Tennessee alive. The night before he left Memphis, the mob came for him. He'd gotten word that the mob would be coming for him, and he fled to a neighbor's house where he was hidden until he could get safely out of Tennessee. If it hadn't been for those kind and courageous neighbors, the mob would have lynched nine black men that night, and I wouldn't be here today. We were always so proud of our ancestors. They'd struggled so hard to take their families where they could be safe, get a good education, prosper, and serve the community. So once again, you have all these African-American families migrating to Oklahoma on the premise that Oklahoma is some sort of Beulah land or promised land, uh, that there's abundant land, economic opportunity, opportunity for social advancement. Regrettably, the first act passed by the Oklahoma legislature, Senate Bill Number One, rigidly segregated railroad facilities. A number of other so-called Jim Crow or segregation edicts followed that. Still, there was opportunity in Oklahoma and in Tulsa specifically. Tulsa began to boom early on in the 20th century with the discovery of Glenpool. Tulsa was referred to back then as the magic city. It's a book called The Magic City. The city with the personality. don't know exactly what that means, but I assume it was complimentary. The Greenwood community, the black community in in Tulsa, kicked off in 1906. A fellow named O.W. Gurley, who was a wealthy black man from Arkansas, who had come to Oklahoma in 1889 in the land run, migrated to Tulsa. He bought land, sold some parcels of that land to other African-Americans, kept some land for himself. He established a number of businesses, including a grocery store and a hotel, again, beginning in 1906. After that, business establishments proliferated. This was very much like a black Main Street and that these were small businesses, mom and pop type operations, service providers like doctors, lawyers, dentists, accountants, et cetera, et cetera. So you would find beauty shops, barbershops, haberdasheries, movie theaters, dance halls, pool halls, Jitney services, hotels, all manner of small businesses. Black Wall Street, the name that was given to this community, allegedly by Booker T. Washington, is in some ways a misnomer because this was not a financial or investment community. It was a small business community that was thriving. So concentrated were the businesses that the community was known throughout the nation. I want to give you an example of some of the early icons of the Greenwood community. One is a lady named Mabel B. Little mabel b little got to the greenwood community in 1913 she was a 17 year old girl she migrated from one of the all-black towns in fact the premier all-black town called boley oklahoma she had a dollar 25 cent to her name she boarded a frisco train bound for tulsa miss little is noteworthy for a number of reasons she was a businesswoman she lived a very long full life she died at age 104 in 2001 about 10 years before her death, she wrote a book called Fire on Mount Zion. And in that book, she described her early experiences in the Greenwood community in 1913. So who else was, was operating in this community, this entrepreneurial community, this business community that was the Greenwood district? Well, Simon Berry was one other notable person. Simon Berry's first business was a Jitney service. A Jitney is like a taxi cab. i talked to some young adults recently, and they said, is, is a Jitney like, like an Uber? And yes, it's, it's, it's like an Uber. So he had this service that was very successful. He saw the need for a greater transportation service. He started a bus line. That bus line was purchased from him by the city of Tulsa. He had a charter plane service. He himself was a pilot. And he also owned and operated the Royal Hotel, one of several boutique hotels operating in and around the Greenwood district. JB Stradford was a prominent lawyer in the Greenwood district owned the Stratford Hotel, which was probably the premier boutique hotel in the Greenwood District. There was the Williams family, John and Lula Williams. They owned the Williams Dreamland Theater, one of the theaters that Mabel B. Little was talking about. They had a confectionery, a garage, and a rooming house as well. There was Dr. A.C. Jackson, a prominent black surgeon in the Greenwood District. Dr. Jackson, even in the early part of the 20th century, had patients who were white and patients who were black. That was remarkable back then because Tulsa was rigidly segregated. The Mayo brothers, as in the Mayo Clinic, called Dr. Jackson the most able Negro surgeon in America. And he was actually killed in the massacre as he exited his home, hands held high, in surrender. He was gunned down and he ultimately bled to death. B.C. Franklin was a prominent lawyer. There were many lawyers in the Greenwood community. Franklin was particularly noteworthy because he helped a lot of the massacre victims with their claims after the devastation. And finally, A.J. Smitherman was the editor and publisher of the Tulsa Star. The Tulsa Star was the leading black newspaper. At the time, it it is the forerunner to what is now the Oklahoma Eagle. So we have all this incredible economic and entrepreneurial activity going on in Tulsa's historic Greenwood District, a roughly 35-square block area, separated from downtown by the Frisco tracks. We come to the period of the massacre, which I like to preface with a paraphrase from Dr. Maya Angelou. Our history, despite its wrenching pain, cannot be unlived. But if faced with courage, it need not be lived again. Keep that in mind as we talk about the devastation wrought by the massacre. One of the important things in terms of understanding what happened in Tulsa in 1921 is context, particularly national context. So let's think about what happened in the run up to 1921. We know that in 1919, the summer and fall of 1919 were referred to by James Weldon Johnson of the NAACP as Red Summer. Red was a metaphorical reference to the blood that flowed in the streets from all this civil unrest. There were over 25 major events that were dubbed race riots in 1919 in places like New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Washington DC, Omaha, Chicago, Elaine, Arkansas, Longview, Texas, and on and on and on. Another thing that's going on simultaneously with this outbreak of racial violence that were things in in these events that were called race riots is lynching. Lynching is domestic terrorism. Lynching is a way to exert control over the oppressed. It is a tool of white supremacy. We know that most lynch victims were African-American. And the point of the lynching was not simply to punish an individual for some real or perceived legal infraction or social slight, but rather to send a message to the community to which that individual belongs about their relative place in society. And that's why it's domestic terrorism. That's why it's a tool of white supremacy. So we know that in 1919, at least 76 African-Americans were lynched. We know that in 1920, there were at least 53 documented lynchings of African-Americans. And we know that in 1921, the year of the massacre in Tulsa, there were at least 59 documented lynchings of African-Americans in America. Part of the reason for being redundant in using the term documented is that much of this trauma, much of this violence was not in fact documented. The aim of lynching again is to stoke fear, to foment terror in a community and it sometimes had its desired impact. So that's the national context in which the massacre happens here in Tulsa. Other things that are somewhat particular to Tulsa and Oklahoma include the growth and burgeoning of the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, that iconic domestic terrorist organization. The Klan has a presence in Tulsa early on in the 1920s that swells tremendously throughout that decade. Add to that the media. We talk about the role of media today in society, That was a discussion that was being had back in 1921 as well. There was a media outlet called the Tulsa Tribune that published a series of inflammatory, incendiary articles and editorials that really fomented hostility in parts of the white community against the black community. Tulsa then was, oh, I would describe Tulsa in 1921 in the run-up to the massacre as a tinderbox or a powder keg. It needed only some sort of igniter or or catalyst to cause the great conflagration that was the massacre. And this was an event in Tulsa that involved two teenagers. I find that interesting. 19-year-old black boy, Dick Rowland, who shined shoes downtown. 17-year-old white girl, Sarah Page, who was an elevator operator in the downtown Drexel building. Monday, May 30th, 1921, Memorial Day. Dick Rowland is shining shoes downtown. He needs to use the restroom. Facilities are generally segregated, but he's aware of a restroom available for his use on the third floor of the downtown Drexler building. Dick Rowan leaves his shoe shine stand, walks over to the Drexler building, enters the building, boards the elevator. Sarah Page is operating that elevator manually. Dick Rowan somehow bumps into Sarah Page. The elevator must have jerked or lurched. Sarah Page began to scream. The elevator landed back in the lobby. Dick Rowan was frightened. He ran from the elevator. Sarah Page, distraught, exited the elevator. She was met by a clerk from a locally owned store called Renberg's. He comforted her. She told him her story about being assaulted on the elevator. Now that was a story that she would ultimately recant. She ultimately refused to cooperate with prosecutors after Dick Rowland was arrested and charged with assault. By the time she got to the point of recanting though, it was too late. And it was too late because of the reportage of the Tulsa Tribune. The Tulsa Tribune on May 31st, 1921, published an account of that elevator encounter. It was a false narrative. The Tribune story essentially said that there was an attempted rape in broad daylight in a public building in downtown Tulsa. The Tribune article went out of its way to make Sarah Page, the young woman, look virtuous. And as a corollary, it made Dick Rowland, the young man, look villainous. I want to read to you verbatim the article published in the Tribune. It's entitled NAB Negro for Attacking Girl in an Elevator. A Negro delivery boy gave his name to the public as Diamond Dick, but who's been identified as Dick Rowland was arrested on South Greenwood Avenue this morning by officers Carmichael and Pack charged with attempting to assault the 17-year-old white elevator girl in the Drexel building early yesterday. He will be tried in municipal court this afternoon on a state charge. The girl said she noticed the Negro a few minutes before the attempted assault, looking up and down the hallway on the third floor of the Drexel building, as if to see if there was anyone in sight, but thought nothing of it at the time. A few minutes later, he entered the elevator, she claimed, and attacked her, scratching her hands and face and tearing her clothes. Her screams brought a clerk from the Renberg store to her assistance and the Negro fled. He was captured and identified this morning both by the girl and the clerk, police say. Tenants of the Drexel Building said the girl's an orphan who works as an elevator operator to pay her way through business college. Now the last sentence of that article, particularly interesting. Tenants of the Drexel Building said the girl's an orphan who works as an elevator operator to pay her way through business college. There was never any information to corroborate that. In fact, Sarah Page, although only 17 years old, was a divorcee, which in 1921 would have been downright scandalous. So the Tribune was going out of its way, again, to make Sarah Page look virtuous, and as a corollary, make Dick Rowland look villainous. Dick Rowland was arrested, taken down to the courthouse, which sat atop the jail, so he put it in the jail, which sat atop the courthouse, and the sheriff became concerned because a large white mob was gathering outside the courthouse. The white mob ultimately numbered into the thousands. A number of black men, several dozen, marched down to the courthouse in an attempt to protect Dick ground from what they thought would be a certain lynching. They were concerned because they had heard rumors of a lynching. They were concerned because they knew about lynchings generally across the United States. They were concerned because about nine months prior that there had been a public lynching of a white boy named Roy Belton who had been accused of murdering a taxicab driver. According to eyewitnesses, law enforcement officers directed traffic to this public lynching or hanging of Roy Belton. According to eyewitnesses, people who attended the lynching fought for scraps of Roy Belton's clothing for souvenirs. So yes, the black men in the Greenwood community were concerned about Dick Rowland's safety. There was a confrontation between the larger white group and the smaller black group. Words were exchanged. A white man tried to take a black man's gun, the gun discharged, and, in the words of one of the massacre survivors, all hell broke loose after that. The violence lasted roughly 16 hours and was quelled by a unit of the National Guard sent in from Oklahoma City. Black men put up a vigorous defense, albeit a short-lived one. They were outnumbered, outgunned, overmatched. The large white mobs spilled over the Frisco tracks into the Greenwood community, burning, looting, shooting, destroying everything in sight. When the dust settled, We believe that somewhere between 100 and 300 people were killed. Hundreds more were injured. At least 1,250 homes in the black community were destroyed. Businesses, churches, schools, and a library were destroyed as well. Property damage, conservatively estimated, ranged from $1.5 to $2 million, well over $25 million today, and that's a lowball estimate. Many black individuals were interned, very much like people of Japanese ancestry were interned during World War II. They were taken to these detention facilities and they had to have a green card, a literal green identification card countersigned by a white person who was willing to vouch for them. Many black families spent days, weeks, and months living in tent cities set up by the Red Cross, which by all accounts did a yeoman's job in providing healthcare, food, shelter, and clothing post-massacre. I wanna give you a kind of contemporary, almost eyewitness account of what happened during the hours of this terrible event. I wanna to read to you a letter from a lady named Jessie Hannam, a white lady who lived adjacent to Tulsa's historic Greenwood district. She wrote the letter on June 2nd, 1921. She sent the letter to her sister who lived in Tucson, Arizona. The sister ultimately sent the letter back to its author because she thought it might be of historical significance. And again, the author, Jessie Hannum, has long since died, but she passed the letter down to her daughter. A few years ago, her daughter, who was then in an assisted living facility, decided that the letter needed to be preserved. So she donated it to the Greenwood Cultural Center here in Tulsa. It's a remarkable letter. Let me read it to you. Dear Sister, Tulsa has surely gone through a day of murder, bloodshed and fire yesterday. All night before last and all day yesterday, a bloody race riot was going on full blast. I never dreamed of anything so awful ever happening where I would have to witness it. You've undoubtedly read accounts of it in your newspaper before you got this letter. There's a sharp line drawn between the whites and the blacks. The Negroes all live in their own part of town, and it's called Little Africa. The white people set fire to the town yesterday about daylight, and the whole thing went up in flames with a great loss of life. Mobs of white men stood with guns to keep the firemen from turning even a single stream of water on the blaze. All night we could hear the shots and they were coming thick and fast about five o'clock. We live about a mile or so from Little Africa, but we could see the flames and the big black clouds of smoke. There's a Curtis airplane field about three miles out from us and two or three big planes circled around in and out of the smoke The whole time it was burning. One of our neighbors who has two sons in the home guards told us that when the fighting was at its worst about daylight, the planes dropped bombs in the Negro section. There was a fine church. The colored people had just finished at a cost of 85,000 to $100,000. It was simply grand, but today it's a total loss. Hayes says just a pile of ruins. They just had their opening services there not more than a month ago. The hospitals are full of wounded, white and black, and as many more deaths are expected in the next few days among the wounded as have already occurred. Hayes worked all day in the Negro district. He tore down many stable doors and let out horses, mules, hogs and chickens. He helped carry colored women out with part of their furniture. He wrapped up several cut and burnt hands and carried many little children out of burning houses. Some offered to help and some didn't. Those that didn't stood on and looked at all the suffering, but those that wanted to help done so and no one offered to harm them. They let the blacks where they lay and Hayes says he saw many. Down by the Frisco Depot, a dead Negro lay with his stomach cut open and his intestines laying on the ground and across his legs. He lay there for several hours, the flies swarming thick over him. Talk of war, this was sure war and a bloody one. This morning's paper estimated the Negro dead at close to 300, but it said that it may average 100 more. They have no way of telling how many lost their lives in the fire. Hayes wasn't there until two or three hours after the fire started, but they told him, the men that were there, that the blacks run in their houses and the whites kept shooting. And rather than be shot, they stayed in until the roof would fall and many burned alive. They have all they could round up in Convention Hall and in churches, and about 2,000 out at the ballpark. They're being fed and cared for, but that seems such a pitiful little bit. Families are separated, wives and husbands, mothers and children. Many don't know if their loved ones are dead or wounded or if their houses were destroyed. They started a relief fund this morning, and the morning paper headed it with $1,000. A judge gave $500, and another man gave $500 how I wish that I had $500 to give them. I have forgotten to tell you what started it all. A young colored boy assaulted a young girl that runs an elevator in a building downtown. He assaulted her in the elevator. They were alone in it. The paper didn't say, but from the account, he must have stopped in between two floors. She's a young orphan girl and is very well spoken of by all the people in the building. She runs the elevator to pay for a course in business college. They arrested the nigger, and there was talk of lynching him. The blacks heard of it, and over 200 gathered at the courthouse, well armed, about 10 o'clock. And of course, a large crowd of white people gathered, too. The blacks opened fire on the unarmed whites. Calls for help and arms were sent out all over the city. And in a little while, the streets were full of dead and wounded. Some laid there until daylight. White men broke into hardware stores taking all the guns and ammunition. Some store owners came and opened willingly, but those that didn't had their doors hammered down. Their loss is quite a lot. Damage to the Negro section is estimated at close to $2 million. Many white people own property there, and the insurance companies won't have to pay a cent as they're not liable in war or riot. Many Negroes own their own homes. We'll send some clippings. So that's the account of Jesse Hannum, again, who was a white woman who lived adjacent to the Greenwood district. She got some things right. She got some things wrong. She obviously is a reader of the Tulsa Tribune in terms of her description of the event in the elevator. But she was right in terms of the, the magnitude of the destruction, both in terms of human lives and, and property. Martial law was declared in Tulsa. Again, black men, mostly men, but some, some women and children as well were interned in these encampments. Hundreds were dead, hundreds were wounded, property damage was tremendous. But the real story here is, again, the story of the human spirit. Most black Tulsans vowed, we shall not be moved. They stayed in Tulsa, they rebounded and began rebuilding, even as the embers still smoldered from the massacre. Now, there are a number of stories that highlight this incredible resilience. One of my favorite stories involves Mount Zion Baptist Church, which is still a viable, vigorous, important part of the community today. Mount Zion Baptist Church is the church that Jesse Hannah mentioned in her letter, a brand new church built at a cost of around $85,000, most of which was lent to the church by a single individual. They had a mortgage of about $50,000. One of the rumors that was circulating around town during the time of the massacre was that Mount Zion was being used. To house a cache of weapons for the black community so when the mob spilled over the frisco tracks and into the greenwood community they went to mount zion and burned it down nothing left but the dirt floor in the basement so after the massacre those who attended mount zion had a number of critical questions to ask and answer one of those was do we still have a church and of course the answer is to the extent that we still have members we still have a church so yes we have a church Where are we going to hold our our services, our gatherings? They decided to hold gatherings in private homes, including the home of Mabel Little, who I mentioned earlier. They thought about insurance. Do we have an insurance policy that might cover this damage and allow us to rebuild rather quickly? They had an insurance policy, but again, as correctly pointed out by Jesse Hannum, most insurance policies in the community excluded damages that were occasioned by riot or civil unrest. So the insurance policy did not pay off. Next, they decided that they might consider consulting an attorney because they knew that there's this mechanism called bankruptcy that could reschedule or extinguish their indebtedness, and that might be a route to quick recovery. But they ultimately determined that they had a greater moral obligation to rebuild and to repay that single individual who was responsible for lending them the $50,000. So it took about 30 years, and incredible fundraising prowess, but they paid off the mortgage, built a new structure, and again, Mount Zion is a viable valued part of the Greenwood community today. The city of Tulsa was not helpful in terms of the rebuilding. There was an effort to rezone the Greenwood community, to change the fire code. Those things were successfully challenged by B.C. Franklin, the the lawyer. Railroad companies wanted the land in the Greenwood district, and they wanted to move the residents of the Greenwood community farther north and take that land and use it for what they considered to be higher and better purposes. Again, this was successfully challenged in part by B.C. Franklin and others uh, in the community. The Tulsa Tribune played a role even after the massacre. I mentioned earlier that the Tribune published a series of incendiary inflammatory articles and editorials. One of the editorials, perhaps the most damning editorial of them all, came on June 4th, 1921, which is three days after the devastation of the massacre when the community of Greenwood is suffering mightily, when the community of Greenwood needs a helping hand. The Tulsa Tribune published an article, actually an editorial entitled, It Must Not Be Again. And I wanna share that particular piece with you as well. Actually, I'm only gonna share the first couple of paragraphs because it's, it's a pretty vile, offensive piece, but it's important that you hear it because The views expressed in this editorial were the views of some of the leadership in the Tulsa community at the time, number one. And number two, it highlights the remarkable human spirit and resilience and character of the people in the black community who, despite something like this, something as vile as this, rebounded and rebuilt. It must not be again, Tulsa Tribune, June 4th, 1921. Such a district as the old nigger town must never be allowed in Tulsa again. It was a cesspool of iniquity and corruption. It was a cesspool, which had been pointed out specifically to the Tulsa police and to police commissioner Atkinson, and they could see nothing in it. Yet anybody could go down there and buy all the booze they wanted. Anybody could go into the most unspeakable dance halls and base joints of prostitution. All this had been called to the attention of our police department and all the police department could do under the mayor of the city was to whitewash himself. The mayor of Tulsa is a perfectly nice and honest man. We don't doubt. But he is guileless he could have found out himself anytime in one night what just one preacher found out in this old nigger town were a lot of bad niggers and a bad nigger is about the lowest thing that walks on two feet give a bad nigger his booze and his dope and a gun and he thinks he can shoot up the world all these four things were to be found in nigger town booze dope bad niggers and guns that's hard to hear It's hard to read, it's vile, but it was a part of the reality in 1921. It was a part of the historical racial trauma that frames the massacre here in Tulsa in 1921. And once again, even in the face of this onslaught, the physical onslaught and the psychological onslaught, this community persevered, plowed forward, and peaked as a business community in the early to mid 1940s when there were well over 200 documented Black-owned, Black-operated businesses in Tulsa's historic Greenwood community. The community begins to decline in the 60s, 70s, and 80s for a number of reasons, most prominent of which are integration, because dollars began to flow outside the community as opportunities opened up in the larger dominant white community, and urban renewal if you go down to the Greenwood community today, you see that Interstate 244 plows right through the heart of the community. That's a phenomenon not unique to Tulsa, It happens all over the United States. Communities of color historically were targeted for urban renewal projects and initiatives because in part they were paths of least resistance. So today in the Greenwood community, we have sort of an integrated community. It's an amalgam of different kinds of interests, residential, commercial, educational, cultural, entertainment, religious, and on and on. It's a community in search of unity and cohesion and in search of a new identity, in search of a new iteration of Black Wall Street. And the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commission is really working toward that end, toward bringing people together, celebrating and leveraging our history so that the lessons of that history can inform the way that we grapple with the current challenges around race that we face today, so very prominently today, that is. So that is kind of a thumbnail history of Tulsa's Greenwood District of Black Wall Street. Let me state what may be obvious. We, like so many other communities in this country, are in grave need of trauma-informed care. We're still relatively early in the process of healing our history, of recovering from historical racial trauma. Trust building is the key and the process will ultimately involve acknowledgement, apology, and atonement. Our historical racial trauma manifests most profoundly in the form of a gulf of distrust between black Tulsans and white Tulsa leadership, individual and collective. It's exacerbated by this community's utter failure for decades to acknowledge its own gaping wound. A confluence of factors Image consciousness, fear, shame, guilt, post-traumatic stress disorder contributed to what some have called a conspiracy of silence surrounding the massacre. But silence is never neutral. Silence always speaks. This stubborn refusal to acknowledge, let alone reckon with, our tragic past has done harm, arguably irreparable harm. But I'm an optimist. And I think the path toward reconciliation remains in sight. That said, while the kind of racism so evident in 1921 no longer dominates our lives, a more subtle remnant of that dynamic persists. Today, it's not about blatant in your face kinds of racial incidents. It's about the disparities and inequities that manifest in employment, healthcare, education, and other arenas. It's about a curriculum that only marginally covers the vast contributions of people of color, and until recently, wholly omitted Black Wall Street and the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre as history. It's about the salt in the wound reminders of white supremacy and slavery and Jim Crow that come with schools named after Robert E. Lee and Andrew Jackson, and yes, Christopher Columbus. Like other places around the nation, we're finally discussing How distorting or whitewashing our history and lionizing certain individuals of dubious character inflicts real harms upon real people. Our challenge is not simply healing from the historical trauma that the massacre was, but rather doing that plus addressing the ongoing traumas we face. It's about addressing the past, attending to the present, and advancing an inclusive vision for the future. Now Let me note 10 things of significance we've done as part of the healing process with regard to the massacre. This is a highlights reel and not an exhaustive listening. Number one, the state legislature created the Oklahoma Commission to Study the Tulsa Race Right of 1921 in 1997. It was a fact-finding body and it made recommendations. The Commission's final report in February 2001 recommended Cash payments to massacre survivors. No action was taken on that. Cash payments to the heirs of survivors who could prove property loss. Once again, no action. The establishment of an educational scholarship fund. There was a scholarship fund created on a limited basis. The establishment of economic redevelopment initiatives in the Greenwood district. So a body or commission was established, but it was not funded and the creation of some sort of substantial historical monument or memorial. So some state money was in fact appropriated to assist with the construction of what we have today, which is John Hope Franklin Reconciliation Park. Number two, we've had a number of mayoral public apologies from former mayors Susan Savage and Kathy Taylor and former mayor and current mayor G.T. Bynum. Number three, there's been a lawsuit filed for reparations for massacre survivors. The first lawsuit was filed in 2003, it was filed by a crackerjack legal team that included Harvard professor Charles Ogletree and famed O.J. Simpson attorney Johnny Cochran, in addition to Randall Robinson of TransAfrica. That lawsuit was dismissed in 2004 on grounds of statutes of limitations, it was time barred. Another reparations lawsuit was recently filed seeking civil damages for massacre survivors And this suit is based on a rather novel application of the law of nuisance. We'll see where that goes. Number four, our former chief of police, Chuck Jordan, issued a public apology for Tulsa Police Department's dereliction of duty back in 1921. Eyewitnesses recounted that members of the police force of law enforcement actually deputized some of the mobsters who came into the Greenwood community, burning, looting and shooting back during the massacre. Next, we've had a number of initiatives that work on building police community relations, like the Mayor's Police and Community Coalition, like the Community and Police Leadership Collaborative. These are initiatives, again, that are designed to build interpersonal relationships, ultimately leading to trust, because without trust, there is no reconciliation. We've had some Systematic or systemic racism initiatives like mapping equality indicators by the Community Service Council that was done in 2016. There are a number of educational initiatives sponsored by groups like the Oklahoma Center for Community and Justice, their Anytown program, their Our Town program, different the same, Trilog series, Interfaith Youth Tour, and a new initiative called the Youth Race Forum. The YWCA here has promoted discussing groups around witnessing whiteness and many of these initiatives are still ongoing. The 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commission, I mentioned that earlier, started by State Senator Kevin Matthews in 2015, is ongoing and focuses on enhancing the Greenwood community for cultural tourism and rekindling the entrepreneurship that was so evident back in the heyday of Black Wall Street. I happen to chair the Education Committee on the Centennial Commission, and we are building public awareness through things like documentaries, public service announcements, a summer teachers institute where we teach teachers the substance of history, but also we teach them pedagogy, how to teach this history. We're also building Greenwood Rising, which is a multi-million dollar, world-class history center. It will be immersive and experiential. It will tell the Greenwood story in a way that patrons can leverage, again, to grapple with current racial challenges that we face, Black Lives Matter, mass incarceration, educational deficits, healthcare disparities, and on and on and on. We're also constructing a pathway to hope that connects key sites in the Greenwood district and really elevates and talks about the founders of the community. We're promoting the Black Wall Street mindset, as I like to say, and that is the can-do spirit around economics and entrepreneurship, not limited geographically to the Greenwood district, but it's really about capacity and opportunity. The City of Tulsa is currently engaged in a mass graves investigation. On October the 2nd, 2018, Tulsa Mayor G.T. Bynum publicly announced his intention to investigate the prospect of mass graves, long rumored to hold the bodies of black massacre victims. The official count of massacre deaths remains at 37, nobody who's credible and have studied these events believes that's the actual number, but that's the official number. But the likely range, of course, is somewhere between 100 and 300, as I've stated previously. So at the outset of this mass graves investigation, Mayor Bynum explained a three-phase process. Here's what he said. What we're looking at doing is really three phases. First, identifying if there are mass graves at all. And if there are, identifying what kind of mass grave it is. Is it a pauper's grave or is it a true mass grave? from the massacre. And third, if it is a mass grave from the massacre, then we want to do forensic examination on the bodies that that are there to hopefully identify them and their cause of death. I think all of that will help inform a greater understanding around what happened in 1921. We've got a ways to go if we're to heal our history. Healing of course is a process. That we've finally begun is a cause for optimism. And like healing our history, an appreciative inquiry requires a searching look in the rearview mirror. It counsels us to look back for inspiration and, and example, for past positives that captivate and catalyze us in the present to fashion a more favorable future. The circumstances surrounding the massacre offer just such an opportunity. The lessons and legacy of Black Wall Street offer a springboard from which to empower young men and women promote self-development and self-sufficiency, and launch a new core of Black business owners. Historical role models matter, not as replacements for such paragons in the here and now, but as supplements to them. Again, Black Wall Street is as much a mindset, a construct, built on promise and possibility as it is about place. We are less limited by the rigors of race and the rigidities of residents today than the Black Wall Street originals in the early part of the 20th century. The ancestors, by precept and example, showed us what could be. Thus empowered, we, in tribute to them, should seize upon all our relative advantages to make it so. Successful 21st century entrepreneurs cannot be bound by the binary racial equation of the past. At the community, state, national, and global levels, racial And ethnic diversity abounds. Our challenge is figuring out ways to leverage that diversity for mutual advantage. Diversity, equity, and inclusion rest on the fundamental proposition that our shared humanity trumps all that might otherwise separate and divide us. Our community is defined by how we treat the least among us. The hours spanning May 31st and June 1st, 1921 in Tulsa provided a tragic, but illustrative case study of man's inhumanity toward his fellow man. We suffer trauma when events disturb our fantasy of a fair and just world. Sometimes such events extend over time and over generations, and that is the case in Tulsa's historic Greenwood District. Greenwood District founders trace their lineage back to enslavement, sharecropping, and Jim Crow-style second-class citizenship in the Deep South. Escaping that racial crucible, they found their promised land in Indian territory only to be formally subjected to mirror image Jim Crow segregation at Oklahoma statehood in 1907. Nonetheless, they built a flourishing entrepreneurial community against all imaginable odds. Without doubt, there have been economic openings for some, better education for some, and at least marginally enhanced social capital in the decades since those existential challenges. While not ubiquitous, open, honest dialogue, and particularly around race, no longer occurs in mere whispers. Still, persistent disparities in virtually every realm, social, economic, political, educational, healthcare, and among others, offer overwhelming evidence that the foundational fissures in Tulsa's community, caused and sustained by intergenerational trauma, require much more in the way of repair, much more investment by each of us. Recovery from trauma presupposes an end to traumatic events, a protective cocoon of resilience, security, protections, and finally, hope that a different narrative for the future may be installed and sustained. The return of hope of a widespread belief in fairness and justice depends on the elimination of trauma often researched in literature today as adverse childhood experiences for our children. As community stewards, we must marshal the resources necessary to heal the wounds of trauma that continue to shorten lives, disable otherwise healthy people, foster addictions, and too often create narratives of despair. When our dream becomes the shared narrative of brotherhood and sisterhood, of shared humanity, then we will have moved closer to the one Tulsa many of us have so long awaited. As the five score anniversary of the Tulsa tragedy approaches, let us exhale and let us breathe freely, oxygenating our efforts on three fronts. One, healing our history. Two, making an appreciative inquiry into our past. And three, recommitting to diversity, equity, and inclusion. If we do this, we will have honored the memory of one of our darkest days by illuminating it with a bright new light. The operative question in 2021 will be, what has Tulsa become in the interim between the 1921 disaster and the present? Similarly, The salient inquiry in 2121 will be, what has Tulsa become in the interim between the 100th anniversary of the 1921 disaster and the present? Perfection or utopia is not possible. We will always be judged on the work we have done between some historical baseline and the here and now. Let us always ask, what must we do to ensure that the future is an improvement over the past and present? We are in that perpetual doing phase now. I'm encouraged, but not satisfied. There will always be more work to do when it comes to binding the wounds of our historical racial trauma.